This is the Learning Capacity Podcast. You're with Colin Klupik. A warm welcome to you wherever you happen to be listening in. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast Australia, improving student learning outcomes with neuroscience programs since 1999. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Martha Burns, Director of Neuroscience Education at Scientific Learning Corporation, about the emerging field of educational neuroscience. Is this a specialist area of knowledge or just a title for intellectual sounding conversation? Are we moving from a philosophical model of teaching to a scientific model? And if we are, what are we to make of it? Some might say there's an art to being a good teacher. However, many now say there's a science to it. Let's dive into this potentially controversial topic. Dr. Burns, welcome to the conversation. Thank you. It's so nice to be here again. I'd like to talk with you about educational neuroscience. And this is a concept we're hearing more about in educational discussion, it seems, all the time, particularly at things like school conferences. Um, Is this a specialist area of knowledge, or is it just a general title for intellectual-sounding conversation? (laughs) Actually, it is a new branch of neuroscience. Neuroscience, I should say, is a relatively new discipline. Um, Neuroscience as a discipline emerged around... 1995, 1990 to 1995. Before that, we had groups of people who studied the brain. We had neurologists who studied illnesses of the brain. We had neuropsychologists who studied the mind and emotions. Um, But by around the middle of of 1990s, we had this emerging umbrella field called neuroscience that was actually looking at how the brain works and looking at how the normal brain or typical brain works. And a branch of that that has emerged in about the last three or four years is educational neuroscience. So for a while there was something called cognitive neuroscience, there was something called systems neuroscience, um, and they were all looking at the brain from different perspectives. But this new educational neuroscience discipline that's emerged is now is now a graduate program in many universities, at least here in the United States. So um, if you look online, if you go online and look at educational neuroscience programs, you'll see that almost all of them started after about 2010. 2011, 2012, schools would say, we have just initiated a new doctoral program in educational neuroscience. So it is a formal discipline. It does exist. It does have its own body of research, but it is brand new. Okay, so emerging, new, and and seemingly very current, uh, or very much on the minds of of course developers in terms of... um, you know, degrees that you can that you can study. Um, people uh, might be asking, our listeners might be thinking, so, okay, what's it all about? What do you do? Well, really what educational neuroscience is trying to, to do is figure out by using very objective measures what are the best ways to teach different kinds of curriculum. So if just a recent review of it that I did, um, there was a, some research on the best way to teach physics, or I shouldn't even say the best way yet, because I'd say there aren't there, they aren't at the point of quantifying it. But what happens if I teach physics one way versus another way? 
Um, what happens if I teach literature? There are three ways of teaching literature. One is to have a student read a book and just reread it over and over again. Then another one might be to ask the student to read the book and paraphrase what they read. But a third method might be to ask the student to read what they read, then paraphrase it, and then explain it to someone else. They call that self-explanation. What are the different parts of the brain that are involved when you do that? Which of those three methods end up having the most lasting results and having the most profound results on the brain? Okay, so there's specific research going into the differences between those methods. Exactly. As opposed to the way we used to look at education, which was more what we called pedagogy, which was philosophy. What's your philosophy of teaching? What do you think is the best way to teach science? What is the best way to teach math? Now we can actually measure it. Okay, that's really interesting because we're going from, if I understand this correctly, a philosophical model to more of a mechanical model. Could I use that word? Or scientific model. Okay, scientific. Okay. Um, yeah. Hence the word uh, neuro- educational neuroscience. <laughs> right. But um, <clears throat> still, it's, there, there seems to be a lot more, um, I'm just trying to work this out, there seems to be a lot more mechanical operation in that. So we just talked about three different methods, measuring the data between those three particular methods and, and seeing what comes out. That exactly. relates to, yeah, that relates to something that I wanted to ask you actually, because to what extent then does educational neuroscience contribute or relate to data-driven teaching models? So, for example, standardized testing. In other Mm. words, can we expect higher levels of measured student progress by just teaching harder? Or do we really have to look at what's going on in the brain? Or do we just not know that yet? Um, I would say that neuroscience is pointing to the fact that, um, that teaching harder doesn't necessarily mean that you're teaching better. That good teaching is not necessarily a hard job. Um, That there is a science to being a good teacher as opposed to an art to being a good teacher. So I think a lot of us used to think, well, we all know who a good teacher is and it's an art. If you're a good teacher, you know, it's, it's like being a musician. You have an artistic ability. But now what we can say is, no, I can actually teach you methods that I can show will improve your students' retention of the material. I can teach you methods that I can show will improve your your students' ability to pay attention to you in class. I can teach you methods that I can show that will um, keep your students motivated. So we're starting to be able to, to determine what methods and what ways of teaching are more effective. Now, that doesn't mean that the data that we're accumulating comes from tests. The data that we're accumulating as neuroscientists, educational neuroscientists, comes from looking how the brain is functioning. So your measurement is brain function. Teachers build brains. That's what they do. They build and in some, in some respects they change the human brain dramatically especially if they're very effective. So what neuroscience allows us to do is see what is an effective teacher, what is it that they do, and how does that change the brain? And that's pretty exciting when you think about it. Mm. So 
I'm just thinking now from the teacher's perspective, uh, just so that we have a, a clear idea of what this is actually asking people to do or to be. I can, I can, I can just imagine that teachers might say something like, wait a second, now you want me to be a brain scientist as well as teach these kids maths? Um, how, how do we get people thinking in this space? Well, that's a really good question because most classroom teachers have not ever had a course on, on in neurology, much less neuroscience. And they have been taught, they've been taught methods, they've been taught methodology, they've been taught um, history, how we teach, and they've also been taught you know, how tests, as you said, how data can help us to know how effective we are as a teacher. And so I don't, I don't particularly want teachers to have to worry about what's going on inside the brain of a child who's responding to them. They don't need to know that. They just need to see that that student is responding to them better and that they're remembering more that they used to remember and that they're paying more attention and that they're more motivated to mm. learn. But we use tests to measure it a little bit artificially, but we can actually see all of that going on in the brain as neuroscientists. We don't need the teacher to see it. They'll see the behavior, and they'll be very, hopefully be very encouraged by the behavior they see. Okay. So I just want to uh, home in on something you just mentioned there in terms of what the neuroscientist sees. Does the neuroscientist see a fairly consistent level of, a, of, of children's brain capacity or capacity to learn? Or is there, from the, from the outset, from, right from the beginning, is there variation? There's quite a bit variation. The human brain is quite variable from person to person, and it varies in all of us over time. So, so our brains are changing and, and maturing throughout our life, really. Our brains, brains are very plastic. So part of, I mean, you're raising a good question, part of what neuroscientists are asking is what is the best way to use the brain? What, what, what is it that we want to see? What is a learning brain versus a non-learning brain? Can we see differences? And what can we do to take a child who seems to be successful, let's say, in reading, and a child who isn't successful in reading, can we look at their brain, see how they're different, and then figure out what are the best teaching methods to get the child who's having trouble to look like the child who's not having trouble? Is it possible to think about this in terms of building a brain's capacity to learn anything? Yeah, that's so, a good way to think of it. Yeah, so are there things that I could do or are there things that uh, educators could do? And I'm thinking now particularly of primary educators that would that would allow them to prepare a young person's brain so that they had the capacity or the ability to adapt to whatever interested them. Yes. Yes. So so if you think about capacities, if we think about anything else that we're training someone to do, let's say I'm training someone to play football or soccer and I know that that's, that person has to have certain capacities to be able to do that. I know that person has to be able to run quickly. I know they have to have hand-eye coordination. I know they have to have some strength. Those are some capacities they have to have. And then if they have those capacities, I can teach them the game. I can teach them the rules. I can teach them the strategies. I can teach them the teamwork. 
I think what where we've been missing in education is we don't we didn't know what those capacities were. We didn't know what are the capacities that make someone good at reading. The underlying capacities. What are the capa underlying capacities that make someone good at maths? Um, and and can we identify those students that don't have those capacities? And then are there neuroscience interventions that can build up those capacities? Is the neuroscience telling us that there's one capacity at the moment that seems to be the one that underpins them all? No. Okay. There are some that are very important, like one is, is attention and another one is working memory. Um, for learning, you have to be able to sit in a classroom and attend on command, and you have to be able to hold information in mind. And those seem to be two core capacities for learning, but but those are two and there are others. Yes, yeah, so, so I think that what we're learning is, you had asked, are, is there a single capacity that underlies all learning? And I would say that there are a few core capacities, like being able to pay attention on command and being able to have what we call good working memory skills, being able to hold on to what's, what you've heard or what you've read for an hour or two hours or four hours. Those are very important core capacities. But there are other capacities, for example, to do maths, you need the, capac the capacity of number sense. You need to be able to have a sense of more and less and far and near and high and low and big and small. To have be good at reading, you need language skills. So neuroscience is working very hard to determine what those underlying capacities are and then also to determine if a if a student is have, has a weakness in one of those capacities, what do you do about it? How can you build that capacity? Now, I'm imagining that some teachers listening into this conversation might be thinking, wow, this sounds really exciting. I'm motivated by this. I would really like to uh, be more involved in this, in this space. Let's say they wanted to experiment with some teaching techniques which were directly informed by educational neuroscience. How would they start? Well, there are some books out that are excellent. There's a book by Eric Jensen called Teaching with the Brain in Mind um, that has a lot of ideas for teachers of how they might be able to, to first of all, explains educational neuroscience to teachers, but also gives very helpful suggestions to them of ways that they could start incorporating neuroscience approaches in the classroom. I would also say webinars and podcasts like this are helpful. I'm sure there are more and more of these out there. Um, the, in the United States, there's a conference called the Learning in the Brain Conference, which is just about this very topic of educational neuroscience and what we've learned last in the last year and what are some of the new approaches that teachers could try. So, so being going online and actually doing a Google search or a search for educational neuroscience professional development or opportunities for webinars, um, online courses that teachers could take, I think they would enjoy all of those. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that there's all this material coming out because I, I was thinking when I was at a conference earlier this year that, that it was just being used as another one of those popular terms. And, and I guess part of the purpose of this podcast is to raise awareness of the fact that well, it is actually a real thing and you can learn about it. Exactly. And I think that 
that I, I've heard the same thing from teachers. Oh, this is just the next new thing. And in three years from now, it'll be something else. And what I like to say to them is that we, we now know enough about the human brain and we understand it well enough to be able to use that information to enable all teachers to be better at what they do. And honestly, I've never met a teacher who didn't want to be good at what they did. They love teaching. They want to be effective teachers. And neuroscience offers them a way to learn more about what being an effective teacher is. Some fascinating insight there again. Dr. Burns, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Learning Capacity Podcast brought to you by LearnFast Australia. If you'd like to comment on this podcast, send us an email to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au and if you'd like to find out more about LearnFast, visit learnfasthome.com.au where you can also subscribe to the blog. Until next time, bye for now. Thank you.